to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. We're talking about physician burnout, just how many steps you actually need to walk each day for a long life, the dangers of medications used to treat acid reflux, using sciencey words to sell scams. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. You know, it's uh, many parts of Canada are experiencing a beautiful summer and we're having backyard barbecues and outdoor weddings and heading to the beach. And probably the last thing on your mind is the new sub variant. Yes, COVID is back. Well, it actually never really left. EG5 or Eris is causing concern among public health experts and it's gaining prominence in countries like the UK and the United States and also guess what? It's arrived in Canada as well. As of May, hospitalizations due to COVID-19 have surged by 12.1% between June 23rd and July 22nd. And also confirmed cases are rising by 8.9% each week. And that is a little bit of a signal for a potential uh, new surge, potentially that may come up in the fall, especially as schools reopen and we all head back indoors because it's getting chillier. And as the summer comes to a close, you know, I always think whenever we've had uh, COVID in the past or a little, you know, surges here and there, it's, or it's, you know, reared its ugly head again. It's when you start to know people who've, who have COVID and, I'm sure you know people who have COVID and I know people who have COVID. I'm starting to hear about people who are getting COVID. So um, I think it's something we always have to be aware of and and be careful of. I know that some of the health authorities are ramping up their um, COVID vaccine campaigns again from September to May. So uh, if that's for you, the vaccine, uh, it's probably a good idea. Um, Unfortunately, COVID has been politicized. And so some people are probably thinking they're not going to get it or they're not going to die from it. But just keep in mind, advancing age is a comorbidity and that places you at greater risk for dying from COVID-19 or having a severe illness as well. Also things like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, all the things we talk about on this show, they can, if you do contract COVID, you're at greater risk for having um, a uh, worse case, you know, a pretty significant case, or even um, from dying as well. It doesn't seem that this particular new variant causes more severe illness. So that's the good news. Um, And so you know, a lot of people aren't getting as sick, but it seems to be a little bit more infectious. That's what um, they're seeing at the moment. Anyway, EG5 is, or Eris is spiking in multiple countries. And, you know, we're not really sure where it's driving an uptick in uh, cases as well, Um, or or why, you know, what's what's happening. And we see in Canada, there's a slight increase in COVID-19 cases, according to the recent data, and also um, the country's wastewater um, earlier in the summer had some of the lowest, um, values, but now that seems to be increasing. In fact, um, the, uh, at least seven of the 39 sites tracked by Canada's COVID-19 wastewater surveillance dashboard have reported an increase. And we're actually seeing, I think it was six times that, um, Eris was seen in the wastewater or tested in the wastewater. So, um, you know, it's something to, be considerate of, um, especially if you're not worried about it. Somebody else that you care about or love or work with might be concerned about it. Um, and some people, um, 
you know, might be worried about their relatives or they may have a, a parent that they're concerned with or somebody who is fighting cancer. And so <clears throat> this is something that, um, you know, we always have to have in the forefront of our minds. Most unfortunately, uh, I think everybody thought it would go away. But EG5 is a subvariant of Omicron. It's the most common version of the SARS-CoV-2 virus in Canada. And um, basically all these subvariants are essentially Omicron. And it's like a big family and like all, all these subvariants, they're like children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews in that family of Omicron, the Omicrons. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's something definitely that uh, we need to, especially as the weather um, gets cooler and we go indoors. And so typically if a new variant is more transmissible than the previous variants, it can lead to more rapid spread. So far, uh, Eris is not showing that. Um, if the new variant causes more severe illness or has higher case fatality rate, it can lead to increased hospitalizations and deaths. And we have to be aware of that. Apparently the vaccine that, that they're bringing out in the fall is, does not specifically target EG5 or Eris, but it is important to assess whether the existing vaccines provide the protection, but apparently this one doesn't. That's what I have learned recently, but uh, that could change because if the vaccines are less effective against the new variant, then it could lead to breakthrough infections among vaccinated individuals. And we do see people who have been vaccinated uh, contract COVID, but for the most part, the cases, the hospitalizations and the deaths uh, are in people who have not been vaccinated. Some variants may have mutations that help them evade neutralization by antibodies generated through previous infection or vaccination. I'm hearing about people who have never had COVID before getting COVID, which makes me a bit nervous since I haven't had COVID, but I've actually met a few people recently that haven't had COVID either, So, uh, which is great. But in the fall, we might actually begin to see some of the public health measures that we so loved, <laughs> like masking, social distancing, and uh, travel restrictions. We may need those may need to be adjusted if this new variant or another new variant poses a higher risk. And there will be more new variants. There will be more, as they say, grandchildren added to the Omicron family. And, and you know, of course, we have to think of other people and, and the global impact uh, of a new variant needs to be considered because there's many areas of the world that have limited healthcare resources. Some of the places in the world are not as fortunate as we are here in many parts of Canada, yet in many parts of Canada where it's rural, where they don't have access to healthcare, um, where, you know, the vaccines, were, there was difficulty getting the vaccines to certain areas. So we have to think about those people as well, and we have to do better than we did the last time so that we can prevent cases, hospitalizations, because that impacts the resources of the healthcare system, and also deaths because that is just uh, totally unnecessary and and so heartbreaking for so many people. So anyway, be careful. I'm sure there's a lot of people who don't even want to be talking about this subject and just want to forget all about COVID, but we really cannot do that. Looks like Leo is going to be joining me on this one. Uh, you probably heard that it's a good idea to aim for 10,000 steps a day and that that is beneficial for your health and uh, to prevent you from dying early or dying from cardiovascular disease. Leo, uh, how many steps a day do you walk? Uh, I mean, I always strive for 10,000. 
That's oh, you do. No, yeah, yeah, but uh, it kind of it kind of varies. Like today, I did under ten, but there are days I do like twenty thousand or, or, or uh, yeah. Wow. But on an average, I I I keep it to to ten. Yeah. And and how Once. long does that take you to do? Um, I never track because i only check the app like at the end of the day <laughs> like oh, i'm not checking it all the oh, time so you walking around in your daily life and then you're adding up your steps yes i do I that see. there's some t- sometimes when i i mean nowadays i don't have like a lot of time off but right. um when i when i do and when i go out like for a walk then i try to try to keep walking at least like an hour like 32 minutes and then i then i and I look, but that's, I think, I don't know if the app is precise. It only gives me like, when I do like constantly like for an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, it gives me like 7,000 or 8,000 steps. Sometimes. Right, exactly. But, you know, a lot of people find that, you know, they have time constraints and they can't actually walk 10,000 steps a day. So it's going to be good news for you as well, Leo, um, that, you know, that, that commonly cited goal of 10,000 was popularized by pedometer manufacturers and, and health advocates as a way to encourage people to be more active. But that 10,000 steps guideline isn't backed by science. But there is actually a new study that says you don't actually have to walk 10,000 steps a day. I, I don't, I, I actually <laughs> decided I was going to walk 10, 12, 14,000 steps a day for the past two weeks. And I've, I've re-injured my, my calf muscle anyway, (laughs) not because of that. I think I, it was playing tennis, which is a common injury. Um, when you play a sport that is a lot of stop and starts like basketball and that kind of thing, I'm prone to this particular injury anyway. Um, but there's no need to walk that 10,000 steps a day, which is good news for me. Good news for you as well. Um, there was a new study published in the European journal of preventive cardiology. It's the largest ever to measure the positive impact of daily walking and step counting. And about 230,000 individuals from around the world were studied. And the researchers found that walking about, guess how many steps it was a day to be a good target for people to lower their risk from dying and also decrease their risk of cardiovascular death. How many steps do you think that was, Leo? Um, I don't know, (laughs) 5,000? Good guess. Good guess. Why don't you text me in for those of you? (laughs) 1-877-399-9898. Text in your guests, and uh, maybe we'll just have a little gift card to a restaurant um, for the winner who gets closest to the number. But so before we uh, do that, um, you know, the I I will say that the benefit. Um, the number of steps that you need in order to benefit you seems to be lower than we had previously expected, um, and there was also the most pronounced, the highest reduction in mortality. I will say was shown to be those people who walked around six to 7,000 steps. Now that's not the number that I'm looking for. I'm looking for another number. So I'm giving you a little hint, one, eight thousand, one, one, eight, seven, seven. It's not 8,000, uh, three, nine, nine, 98, 98 text in your guess, how many steps you need to walk in order for it to benefit you. We'll have a gift card for you at Earl's restaurant and we'll announce the winner. Um, shortly because we're not going to let you wonder about this for too long. I will say that um, the more steps, the better. So the more steps you walk corresponds with greater health impacts and lower chances of dying from any cause and especially dying from heart disease. And, you know, the thing is, 
Uh, this study also included uh, data on people who walked up to 20,000 steps per day and found that they experienced the greatest health benefits. I've done that. And if I have intentionally gone walking and then with my job, um, you know, I'm walking around, I've, I've been known to do 25, 30,000 steps in a day, excuse me, just chasing everybody around and working and working out in the whole nine yards. Um, but, you know, the, the point is the most important thing here is, and we have a few texts coming in um, about this, or you could call in the number one 399 9898 The important thing is instead of fixating solely on a specific step count, it's more important to focus on overall physical activity and maintaining an active lifestyle. And, you know, the World Health Organization and other various health organizations generally recommend that adults aim for at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise or 75 minutes of vigorous intensity aerobic activity per week. And along with muscle strengthening activities, so important, two or three days per week, building up your muscles helps you to have stronger bones and prevention of falls and less likely to be injured as well, the stronger you are. And, you know, if you're not currently active, it's a good idea to start with a reasonable goal and gradually increase your step count over that time. Um, and, you know, pay attention to your body's response to activity. My body didn't respond too well <laughs> to my increased activity. It was partly because I was doing 12, 14,000 steps a day. Plus I was swimming, plus I was playing tennis and I'd just had an injury in June. So it's a bit of a re-injury. I know my physio is going to be disappointed with me. We do have a caller on the line. Um, we have Leonard from Winnipeg. Hello, Leonard. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? Well, I'll get through another day. Excellent. Anyway, <laughs> so I was guessing 4,000. Good for you. <laughs> bingo, bingo. Um, yes, well done. That's the amount of steps you need to get some benefit and to actually live a little bit longer and uh, not die from cardiovascular disease. You know, I have two um, winners here because I, uh, somebody else guessed 4,000 as well. Another common guess here is 4,500 steps, which is very close. Uh, you're all doing well out there. But uh, if you'll give your information over to Leo, we'll get that gift card out to you um, ASAP. Cool. And I also have somebody else from Alberta who, who uh, texted in uh, 4,000 steps. So thank you so much for calling in and, and participating on this. Okay, thank you. Have a great day. Yes. Get up, get going, get moving, get healthy. You're going to want to take care of your own health here, especially when you hear this story, because there's so much you can do for prevention. And uh, oftentimes people start to rely on medications and prescriptions from the doctors. And oftentimes doctors, you know, have about 10 minutes per problem with each patient. And, you know, it's just easy to write a prescription, not to say that they're not working hard. They are, they're working incredibly hard. In fact, we're going to be talking about physician burnout in the next hour with Dr. Tommy Mitchell. Um, but there are so many prescriptions that are written in this country. And, you know, sometimes that's the easy way out. We want to take a pill. We want to take care of it with a pill instead of maybe changing our diet or increasing our exercise or dealing with issues like constipation or diarrhea, which can all be related to what I'm going to be talking about right now, and that is long-term use of acid reflux medication. You know why you don't want to be taking those? Because there's a recent study that says they are linked to, linked, I said, not cause, but linked to higher dementia risk, and you don't want to get dementia. People who take proton pump inhibitors like um, Prevacid, Nexium, 
for about four and a half years or more have a 33% higher risk of developing dementia. This research was published Wednesday in the journal Neurology, and it looked at data from more than 5,700 people who were enrolled in the study who initially did not have dementia and found that those who took PPIs or proton pump inhibitors for about four and a half years had that 33% uh, increased risk of developing dementia than those who did not take the medications. Now, you know, oftentimes people will get acid reflux, gas, burning, and it's very uncomfortable. But, you know, the first place I would look is your diet. Uh, you know, are you overeating? Are you eating at different times, uh, l- larger amounts at different times during the day, like before you go to bed? Are you, you know, lying flat when you're in bed? You know, we can do a lot by sitting up, especially after a meal. You know, there's a lot of conservative measures that you can do to actually reduce that acid reflux before you go right to the medication. Now, this study, as I pointed out, did not say these medications cause dementia, only that there was an association. And um, correlation does not mean causation. So there's an association between using the drugs and a higher risk of developing dementia. And about a third of people over the age of 85 have some degree of dementia. Uh, The researchers did not find a higher risk of dementia linked to shorter term use. So if you've only been using it for a few months, you might want to look to and speak to your doctor about conservative measures. You certainly don't want to stop taking the medication without speaking to your doctor. And certainly speak to your doctor if you're taking these medications before you make any changes at all to discuss the best treatment option for you. Um, That is so important important because stopping these drugs abruptly may result in worsening symptoms, but you may be able to taper off. Anyway, have that conversation with your doctor. As I mentioned, I mentioned a couple of pro- proton pump inhibitors. They're Prevacid, Prilosec is another one, Nexium, and they manage symptoms of acid reflux or GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. And that's a little bit more serious than acid reflux. The stomach contents move back up into the esophagus and they can cause heartburn, nausea, regurgitation, discomfort, and they can lead to more serious complications like difficulty swallowing or bleeding in your digestive tract. And nobody wants that, of course. And and people who have GERD are also at a slightly increased risk of developing esophageal cancer. A lot of people, as they age, start to get GERD. They start to get acid reflux. And I think they automatically think medication But, you know, you shouldn't really think medication first. You really should think conservative measures first because there has also been, according to studies, a possible link between proton pump inhibitor use and a higher risk of stroke, bone fractures, and chronic kidney disease. And so that was really why the researchers wanted to do this particular study because they wanted to see if the medications were also linked to dementia. And they have found that there is some link. Um, you know, there's, there, we've studied it in the past, but, you know, some previous studies have found a little bit of an association. Others have found no association at all, but it's just something to think of. And I think it's more of a warning that says, you know, I I can take care of my own health. Food is medicine. Do not forget that, you know, and you might want to change your diet. You may want to cut out the spicy foods. You may want to cut out the dairy, you know, dairy causes GERD for a lot of people. Um, So cut down on that ice cream. I know it's summer. I know it's difficult to do that. I like ice cream too. Um, But, you know, these are kind of important things. 
Um, this particular research, the scientists analyzed data, analyzed data from the atherosclerosis risk in communities, the ERIC study, gathered from 1987 to 89 through 2017, and they adjusted for age, race, sex, and chronic conditions like diabetes and hypertension two other healthcare conditions, medical conditions that you can, you have a lot of control over. If you, you know, look at your diet, uh, eat a healthy diet, get moving, get walking, get exercising. And the average age of the participants in this particular study was 75. Um, the people who were using over-the-counter medications, there are a couple that you can buy, um, omeprazole, for example, and they, um, they did not look at those in this particular study, but you might want to talk to your doctor about that. Um, there are other variables that can contribute to dementia risk that aren't fully accounted for or were not fully accounted for in the study. Poor diet and lack of exercise also were associated with both acid reflux and dementia. And so that's important to remember that it's so important for you to eat healthy and as healthy as you can. I know it's so much easier to get something cheap and, you know, to get something quick or to have those carbs, you're starving, you haven't eaten and you want to just grab a bun. I know I do it myself. Um, but it's so much better to be mindful about your meals and actually plan them and take time to do them. I know we're all busy today. We're rushing around. Um, but it's worth it to take that time and, you know, you feel good. Your refrigerator looks beautiful. That's something else I would recommend clean out your refrigerator and your freezer. When was the last time you did that? Um, it also just declutters everything and it allows you to, you know, take an inventory of what you've purchased and what you haven't eaten, what you're going to have to throw away because it went to waste. Oftentimes we're just filling up our refrigerators, especially in the summertime with guests and that kind of thing. And a lot of food goes to waste. And, you know, we have a food issue in this country where a lot of people don't have access to healthy food or to any food. Uh, it's a big issue for a lot of people. So, but it can also just clear your mind, clear your gut as well. Um, and so make sure you're being, bringing in healthy foods, vegetables and fruits and having three to five fruits and vegetables each day. And, you know, you don't have to start out, you know, immediately you can wean yourself off the fabulous chocolate cookies and the whole thing. Um, the other thing is that chronic stress may be linked to dementia as well. And, and GERD is, has been demonstrated to interfere with sleep. And poor sleep is also associated with a significantly higher risk of dementia. So these are things that you need to be careful about. You need to take an inventory of your life, your health every day. And, you know, because you matter and, and, you know, your health matters and there's so much, you have so much power over your health. Um, and you know, you, you, there's so much that you can do and, you know, it's just, starting and it's getting that motivation. And, and, you know, sometimes people there, they might be on their own or they live alone. Their loneliness is a big issue in the country as well. And, and, you know, it's good to get out and to meet people, join groups, um, you know, and, you know, just put yourself out there and, you know, maybe get a walking partner or maybe get a, a nutrition partner, a, a healthy eating partner. Um, you know, so there's so much that you can do, um, to be healthy and to live a bit longer and to live more of a quality life as well. Um, you know, and, and when your doctor is prescribing medications for you, for example, um, you know, it's important that 
patients not use any medication when there's not a reasonable expectation of benefit? I'll take that one step further and say, when there's if there's not a benefit to you, you really need to speak to your doctor about whether you need to continue that medication, but always have that conversation with your doctor. I see a lot of patients and I'll review the medications that they're on. And oftentimes I'll ask them if, you know, if a particular medication is working or I can see that maybe it isn't working. Um, you know, if I take their blood pressure or something and they may have been tracking it, or if somebody is still experiencing depression and they're taking an SSRI, um, and they'll say, you know, it's not working, but you know, it's, you must have that conversation with your doctor, um, before you continue on a medication or, or even before you start a medication, what is the reasonable expectation of the benefit? But, you know, we cannot underestimate the lifestyle modifications, including reduction of those foods that are known to trigger your symptoms. And that's just a simple food diary that you can write down for two days, just write down what you're eating what symptoms you experienced and, you know, and take a look back at that. Um, you know, you also don't want to eat three hours before you go to sleep. You want to elevate the head of your bed and also weight loss is really important and weight loss if you need to lose weight. And that's again, another conversation with your healthcare provider. Um, if you need to lose weight, it's a, it's also, um, associated with a reduction in acid reflux and, and GERD as well. So, it's, you know, it's very important that you be the advocate for your own health. Um, you know, uh, you know, and, um, some people might be just fine. Keep in mind an on-demand approach to proton pump inhibitors may work just fine and potentially carry less risk for some people as well. So always have to weigh the benefit versus the risk and, and have that conversation, do your research, um, about it and, but also, you know, take some steps in your own journey, in your own healthcare, um, and take some responsibility for it. And, you know, the other thing is who's going to take care of you, <laughs> something to consider a very good reason to, um, take care of yourself and to be in the best health possible mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally is because it's very hard for the people who love you, especially if it's things that you could prevent. Now there was a lot of things that people could not prevent, uh, genetics and whatever may contribute to, uh, issues. And of course, we're not going to give up on our, our loved ones, but um, but if there's something that you can prevent, if you can look after your own health and, and reduce your risk of diabetes, hypertension, acid reflux, any one of the above, or any one of a number of conditions, cardiovascular disease, you know, it's very, very important that you do that. This just drives me crazy, this next subject. And it's oftentimes you see on Instagram or TikTok, you see these influencers. Recently, one of the influencers on TikTok, and it had garnered millions of views, um, was recommending, I think I talked about it last week, having adding borax to, borax to your uh, cup of water, which is completely not recommended whatsoever. What borax is good for, which I forgot to mention last week when I was talking to Jill Bennett, is have you ever burned anything? This is the kind of cook I am. <laughs> when the pot is black on the bottom, you just put a little water in and just a little borax and leave it overnight. And uh, you're able to actually clean the pan instead of throw it away. It's saving me a lot of money. Anyway, um, I do want to talk about, you know, 
this kind of using sciencey terms to sell products. Um, some of the buzzwords include supportive gut health, skin detoxing, immunity support, hormone balancing, energy enhancement. All of this sounds impressive and it sounds sciencey and actually gives a little bit of legitimacy to a product, but there's no science behind it. You see it all the time. It, it's just one of the downsides of social media is that there have been so many non-medically trained people who, you know, have gathered words from other people. They haven't done the research. They haven't done the, the case studies. They haven't done the clinical practice. They have not actually laid a hand on a patient. Um, and so they've never assessed a patient. They, and always typically what you find is that they are trying to sell a product. And, you know, this kind of thing hurts the legitimate science because it, it actually uneducates us about the real research that's going on in the area. You know, I heard something recently about, I mean, I, when I hear the word startup, I am like, no, <laughs> don't even talk to me about a startup that there, you know, I was listening recently to the Elizabeth Theranos um, podcast. I've, I've seen that documentary. If you haven't seen it, it's a good one to watch. It's just somebody who is actually able to, and there's many people out there like this, that they can, they're con artists and they can make things sound really impressive. If you recall, uh, Elizabeth Theranos was, or the company was Theranos. Is that her name? I think her last name was Theranos. Anyway, um, she was, instead of taking a vial of blood, she claimed that they could take a pinprick of blood and do, you know, a hundred lab tests or something. And, and it wasn't true. It was, it was all smoke and mirrors. And, you know, when I hear people are working a, in a startup, having a cure for this or a treatment for that, you know, it's, um, oftentimes it's smoke and mirrors and a lot of people invest, a lot of people have a lot of money and they might invest in 20 different things. And they hope that, you know, two or three of them pop, you know, two or three of them are, uh, successful. And so, you know, they don't really care. They don't need to value their money. Um, but it's, and it doesn't phase them that, that they might be up against a con artist. I mean, people have, I think she, raised a hundred million dollars. People are raising 60, 70, $80 million. They have nothing at the end of the day, they have nothing. And if you look into this a bit, you can actually see this. And so it, the, on Instagram, it's just, somebody is trying to sell you a product. I actually looked at something. I was looking at something on Instagram. Uh, it was around constipation and diarrhea. Well, it was actually by a medical doctor, but the pitch, the sales pitch was so long and so extensive and it never got to the product, but we're, and they were redundant and repeating the same messages over and over again. And, you know, it, it, it was not a product that had been backed by science. It was maybe a formulation that was put together by this particular doctor. But at the end of the day, it is, you know, wanting to sell you basically a laxative for, you know, 60, $70 a month. Um, and so again, it's nutrition, it's your, the food that you take in, it's the, it's the probiotics in the form of cauliflower and potato skins and, and uh, broccoli and that kind of thing. And so you have to be very careful about, um, these sciency use of sciency words and because they fool all of us and, and it's a growing trend and it's because people are trying to make a buck. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of companies, a lot of companies will approach me about, different programs, you know, to educate 
you know, uh, people or students or pharmacists or physicians or nurses in my area of, of healthcare. And, you know, they'll say they've done a social media campaign and I'll say, you know, how did that work for you? And it, you know, it, it does not garner the results. They actually don't get the message out, um, that they want to. And so it's, you know, you have to have legitimate people. I'm never going to back something because I'm going to make $30 off of it. Um, it's just not, something that I would ever do. And, and most healthcare providers would not do that either, but you'll, you'll see it on Instagram. You'll see it on TikTok. You'll see all these products that are supposedly going to make your life, make you sleep better and, and have you reduce your urinary tract infections, um, as well. And, you know, so many promises, so many, so many promises, um, in, Today, so many people selling fake cures. Selling fake cures or fraudulent medical treatments is unethical and can harm you. And, it, and when people do this, they prey on vulnerable individuals that are seeking relief from their health conditions. And that can lead to delayed or ineffective treatment. It can impact people financially, especially older people on a fixed income. And it can even exacerbate their medical issues. I one time I had a patient come into my office. She had gone to a drugstore first. She had spent $400 on a bunch of junk. And then I explained to her, assessed her, explained to her what she could do. And she said, you know, I wish I had come to you before I went to that drugstore. I said, go take everything back. None of this is going to work. <laughs> she was sold false promises. It's important to recognize that legitimate medical treatments are developed through rigorous scientific research, clinical trials, and regulatory approvals that ensure their safety and effectiveness. And just because something is quote unquote, air quotes, healthy or natural, it doesn't actually mean that it's, that it's going to work or that it is safe for you. And, you know, selling fake cures can fall under various legal and ethical violations and, and including healthcare fraud when you're misrepresenting products or treatments as legitimate medical solutions, when they lack the scientific evidence it can be considered healthcare fraud. That's illegal in many jurisdictions. And, you know, there are consumer protection laws for a reason, and they're put in place to prevent false advertising and prevent and protect consumers from deceptive marketing practices. So I'm just saying, be very careful. Healthcare professionals have a duty to provide accurate information and treatments that are based on established medical knowledge and the evidence and ethical principles as well. So beware the dissemination of fake cures. Lots of texts, lots of callers tonight. Um, so I'm just trying to get through some of these before we go on to the second hour. Uh, this hour, though, we, we're going to be talking about things that you should be taught in school. What do you think? I'm interested to hear your thoughts on um, how the education curriculum should change, perhaps, and also um, what is the most important leadership skill in the workplace today and also going to be talking about a very sad situation around physician burnout with Dr. Tomi Mitchell, who's going to join me shortly. But I did want to get to um, one text message that I thought was fairly important. Um, tonight, it was, uh, Maureen, what is the cause of acid reflux? And, and so I just thought, it, which I probably didn't review, but um, I think it was a great question. And so we'll just continue on that very quickly. Obesity is one of the causes. Hiatal hernia is another cause of acid reflux. Smoking um, is another cause. Chocolate is another cause. Dairy is another cause. 
Um, what else? Carbonated drinks are another cause. Coffee can also lead to acid reflux. Tea can lead to acid reflux symptoms. And, um, you know, another, a number of other foods like fried foods are a big culprit of acid reflux as well. And, and lo and behold, that tight clothing um, can also cause acid reflux. Um, and th- but the person who texted and also mentioned something about a cure for H. pylori, which is something entirely different. It's the cause of uh, an ulcer, typically. And then, um, and then of course, there was some, um, uh, this was a post from Instagram or um, social media, and it was, you know, promoting strawberry extract and blueberry extract. But H. pylori is something entirely different. And one of the symptoms of H. pylori is acid reflux, along with a number of other symptoms like diarrhea, constipation, bloating, flatulence, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, weight loss, muscle loss, um, and mood swings, that kind of thing. So they're entirely different. And so I just wanted to make that clear. But thank you so much. I believe that was Beth who sent that in. Um, Great question. But maybe next week I will cover ulcers and H. pylori. A lot of people have had that as well. But uh, let's see, where are we now? (laughs) Um, Yes, we're going to be getting to my guest. Uh, In Canada, um, this is a a concern like it is in many other parts of the world. And this segment might be a trigger for some people as we discuss death by suicide. Uh, If you you or someone that you know is feeling suicidal or in emotional distress, you can contact the Crisis Services Canada Helpline. They provide immediate support and can connect you to resources in your area. The phone number to call is Crisis Service Canada, 1-833-456-4566. That's 1-833-456-4566. The helpline is available 24-7, provides confidential and non-judgmental assistance for those in crisis. And it's important to reach out for help if you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide. All right. Uh, joining me on the line to discuss this subject is, you've heard her voice before, none other than Dr. Tomi Mitchell. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Wonderful. Now, death by suicide is a complex and serious issue that's often the result of a combination of factors, including mental health, personal circumstances, social influences, and more. And many individuals who die by suicide have underlying mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, and these conditions can contribute to feelings of hopelessness and despair. I'm going to talk to you and ask you about the risk factors and warning signs, but oftentimes or rarely do we think that this would affect somebody like a physician. Yet that was the case with the young Mount Sinai doctor in New York City this week. Um, Tell me a little bit about that situation. Yes, very unfortunate case out of New York where a, you know, renowned physician in her community, a cancer doctor, ended the life of her child and then um, shot herself. Basically in her home, her baby would have been about four and a half months old, very young. And from the outside, this physician, you know, she had a lot of things going for her professionally. But again, we'll never know what was inside her mind. But 
this is what came out and it was very unfortunate and her husband wasn't there when it happened but I think her parents her in-laws were in the house when they heard the shots and by the time they heard both it was too late I mean, it's just, it's just so tragic. And, you know, we've heard of successful people. We don't think successful people. We somehow think brilliant, successful people are immune to this kind of a thing, uh, but they're not. What are some of the risk factors for death by suicide? And this is even worse. This is a, a case where the doctor took the life of her young baby and then um, turned the gun on herself. Yeah. Um, and so what are some of the risk factors? Because you, you go to your doctor, you think they've got it all going on, but there are actually support services for doctors. Doctors also experience depression and anxiety and other mental health issues. Um, but what are some of the various risk factors that can increase the likelihood of suicidal behavior? Yeah. So a big one is trauma. I know, um, Trauma doesn't get enough attention. Just, uh, just FYI, more than 50% of cases of depression are due to, largely contributed to underlying trauma, whether childhood experiences most likely or adolescence. And I think that's something that we often forget to acknowledge, right? It could be loss of a family member. It could be exposure to horrible things in your life. Like there's many things. So trauma is huge. Obviously, previous suicide attempt, and you said um, history of mental illnesses such as depression, chronic pain. Like I've seen patients who have tried everything to alleviate the pain of a horrible mm-hmm. illness, and they want, you know, out. Um, legal problems. We've seen people who've led banks, whose banks went under, or major businesses went under. The next thing you hear is that they, you know, jumped off their twenty-foot apartment or something, substance use, Um, again, sense of hopelessness, right? It's usually not something someone just does spur of the moment. By the time somebody decides that this is the answer, they've gone through a lot of things in their mind. Mm -hmm. And it's really unfortunate. So those are some of the risk factors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, one of them, I, there's still such a stigma associated with um, mental illness and, and also suicide and uh, death by suicide. You know, people keep those family secrets, so they don't oh, talk about that there yeah. was a, a family history of a suicide. But is that um, a risk factor for uh, increasing the likelihood of suicidal behavior? You know, that's a really good point, Maureen. So many families have their skeleton in the closet, whether it's, you know, there could be um, somebody in their family who has been abusive to other members of the family, right? And there's this hush, hush, don't talk about it because no one likes to talk about those things. Um, because they're, they're ashamed, basically. They're ashamed. They're they ashamed. Every, yeah, yeah they, they think that they want to put on a veneer of perfection and that every other family is perfect except for ours. And if people find out that in our family we had a, a death by suicide, we will be ostracized or, or whatever. We will be thought less yeah. of. Yes, and there's definite shame. There's definite um, stigma that society has put on mental illness, right, or um, mental health concerns. And there's also the piece that it's a hot topic. I'm going to mention it because we know we don't shy away from 
access to lethal means of suicide amongst those who are high risk, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you can't die by a, you know, um, gun. If you don't have a gun. If you don't have a gun and it's right. easy to get, right? So that's something that we need to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. Yep. And that, no, that's interesting in this case as well, because that's the other thing, like, you know, we make so many assumptions and we wouldn't assume that a physician would have access to a gun. And, you know, we, yeah. we may never know, but it's, it's unusual. And, and it's unusual that somebody of such high caliber uh, professionally um, would suffer this much. But I mean, it's, it's not unheard of. And of course, last have year we had a few. Yeah, exactly. Last year, there was other high profile individuals that, you know, had death by suicide. And we talked about it on this show just because someone looks quote unquote perfect on the outside doesn't mean they're not having struggling struggles. You can have high um, performing anxiety or depression, right? And then, you know, we kind of put this, we regard them on this pedestal, which many of them internally are struggling to even come to terms with that or live up to that expectation, right? That's true. My guest is Dr. Tommy Mitchell. I want to warn you, if you're just joining the program, that this may be a trigger for some people as we are discussing death by suicide. In Canada, if you or someone you know is feeling suicidal or is in emotional distress, you can contact the Crisis Services Canada Helpline. They provide immediate support and connect you to resor- can connect you to resources in your area. The phone number for Crisis Services Canada is 1-833-456-4566. Dr. Mitchell, thanks so much for staying on the line. My pleasure. I also want to mention that if you do have a question for the doctor, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Or you can text as well if you have any questions at all. Uh, Mental health is such an important uh, subject and death by suicide affects so many people. Uh, it's It's the people that are left behind as well. It's not just the person... And in this case, uh, the baby that she took with her, we're talking about the doctor from Mount Sinai who took her own life um, this week. We don't think of physicians as having burnout, but they do, Dr. Mitchell. And I know you work with a lot of uh, professionals who experience burnout. What are some of the warning signs uh, for people who are at risk for suicide? Yeah, so they might be expressing pain or like they feel trapped, whether that's emotional pain, um, physical pain. Um, they also may talk about being a burden. Again, if you have a ter- terminal illness and you feel like there's no cure or hope and then your loved ones are sacrificing their time and resources to look after you, you might feel like you're a burden. Um, increased alcohol use. Oftentimes, alcohol and drugs go together. And... Um, Behaviors will can result that we're are reckless, right? Um, changing Absolutely. eating, right? Changing um, sleep and eating patterns, right? You might mm-hmm. be sleeping too much or too little, withdrawing or feeling isolated. Mm-hmm. And then, this, and, um, yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask. It's um, some people feel like they will be less of a burden. Like this is the answer to help other people people who have um, actually attempted to die by suicide but failed in that and or were not successful in that. They talk about they thought it was um, better this way. Yeah. 
Um, is that something that you're aware of? Yes, I've definitely seen cases where somebody, you know, attempted was unsuccessful and committed suicide. And I've definitely seen cases where they thought that this was the best way out. And frankly, it's not. Your family will go through extreme pain like no other. Uh-huh. And if you feel this way, know that you are more important alive than gone. So please, please, please find somebody that would listen and help you and know that regardless of how hopeless your situation might seem, there is still some hope. So uh-huh. um, this is huge. And I'm going to touch on another point that is touchy, but again, I like to talk about those things. In many insurance policies, if your loved one passes from death by suicide, that insurance policy is null and void. So if you think you're going to be able to take care of your family in your absence, think again. I've, like I've seen it where it's because that was the, um, the way the individual passed, insurance companies have been like, no. So there's so many layers. Suicide is not pretty. It's a tough subject, but it's something we need to talk about because it's happening so often. And many times because it's so hush-hush, you might not even know it's suicide. You may just be led to believe, oh, they died of, you know, something else, right? There's that That's right. shame, stigma associated with it. And it's really, really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting about the insurance because I actually thought that that had changed. Uh, perhaps I'm wrong because it also just does not value mental illness and, and mental health. You know, as if, if somebody dies from, um, you know, uh, you know, a car accident or, you know, heart attack or whatever, and their life insurance is okay because that's an acceptable way. But somebody who is suffering mentally, it's the same as somebody suffering physically. Yeah. So yeah, that insurance thing, there is still a clause in some policies and some of them are time dependent, right? The policy Uh has to be so many years old, but it's, it's a big problem. Like suicide is a, it's a symptom of under- mm-hmm. of other things going on. Like it's not, someone doesn't decide, okay, I'm going to kill myself today. That did not come out of a vacuum. And that's why we need to be more aware of this situation. And also in this case, the question of, was there postpartum psychosis for this mm-hmm. woman? Because you know, we've had many cases in the media of moms committing suicide, right? Like taking their children's life and then turning that same gun on them. Is this another case? And again, we don't know, but I'm sure the family might, in retrospect, be able to see, okay, perhaps this contributed to it. But regardless, it is so unfortunate and it doesn't need to be this way. It doesn't have to happen. And we only have about a minute left or less, but um, I know you coming on and talking about death by suicide and people dying by suicide um, is one way to prevent suicide. But what are some of the other ways? To prevent? Have a, yes. a strong support. Have like a strong support and also have like purpose. It sounds so cheesy, but having something that keeps you going. Because when you feel hopeless, that's when sometimes this seems like the only route. But strong support that is open to talk about mental health, mental fitness, physical health without judgment. Right. Absolutely. That is huge. So important. And and I really just want to say promoting early intervention for mental health conditions. Yeah. We're we're so delayed by the shame and the oh, stigma. It, yeah. It's just awful. Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 
My pleasure, Maureen. Have a good evening. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.